Good morning. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Once more, Father, we thank you for the joy that is ours to come together and to sing, to lift our voices together, to worship you and praise you and express our love for you. Thank you so much. Now we continue to worship you as we give careful attention to the proclamation of your word. And we invite you by your Holy Spirit to be powerfully evident in our midst this morning. We invite you to speak to our hearts and to change us, not merely that we leave here better educated, but we leave here more full of your Holy Spirit. To this end, Father, give us listening ears. Help us to receive what the Spirit has to say to the church today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's a guy by the name of Gene Carl, and he's a former Mormon. Now is a, he's a blogger and a podcaster. Uh, he wrote this interesting article. Uh, bear with me. Before moving to Idaho, I knew next to nothing about the Mormon church. All I really knew about Mormons was that they had temples with a golden angel named Moroni on top. The Book of Mormon was one of their holy books. Family was important to them. They spent a lot of time and effort on bringing new people into the faith. I was aware of the fact that the LDS church focused heavily on missionary efforts, but I had no idea that some people in the church would pretend to be your friend so you would join nor did I believe some of my family members when they tried to convince me of it. I later found out that a lot of LDS people only care about you if you're either a member or interested in becoming one. At any rate, even if all of it was not sincere, the way people in the church treated me made me feel truly accepted for the very first time in my life. What I had heard about the doctrine of the church up to that point sounded Christian. It wasn't until I was preparing for my mission that I learned that the church goes to great lengths to control what investigators and new members learn about the church and that some doctrines are initially intentionally not talked about or not talked about until years after a member after someone has been a member of the church. On one of my on on my mission I was even taught to deny some of the doctrine that might turn people away from the church including the doctrine that following all the rules of the church will enable a person to be a god in the afterlife and that the god the LDS church serves is taught to have once been a man who achieved godhood by following all the rules of his god. Despite how well documented it is in the church that it believes that and that it's contained and canonized in works such as the doctrines and covenants. I tried to convert one of my uncles by way of letters and he was having none of it and sent me a long letter on the true origin of the book of Abraham, one of the church's holy texts, which is not, which is not as holy or inspired as the church claimed it to be. New information on the book of Abraham rocked my faith in the church in a big way. The short of it is that the church claimed Smith translated an ancient scroll into the book of Abraham but later the scroll was translated by an Egyptologist and it was discovered that it had exactly diddly and squat to do with anything Joseph Smith said it was about and that it was just a common Egyptian burial text. One of the biggest things that bothered me from the time I joined the church was that the church stressed that the biggest thing is to have a testimony of the church, which is to have a spiritual witness that it's true. I had never had a spiritual experience and I would call a that I would call a spiritual witness that the church was true. And when asked about it, 
I was told the Spirit didn't tell me it was true because I already knew it, but that did not even remotely satisfy me. During, before, during, and after my mission, I wondered why I was the only one who didn't receive a spiritual witness of the church. I later decided that no one ever receives a spiritual witness of the church, but doesn't want to be the only one who hasn't. <laughs> so they pretend that they have like everyone else does, just like the story of the emperor with no clothes. A common saying in the church about testimony is, a testimony is gained in the bearing of it, which is basically fake it until you make it approach. Or in other words, if you tell yourself a lie long enough, you will eventually believe the lie is true. One of my good friends is a Mormon. Um, I've tried talking with him. He's very open to talking about his, his faith. Um, I tried to question some of the false teaching of the LDS church. When I bring these subjects up, he's quite surprised that the LDS church teaches that. And so uh, he doesn't have any idea what I'm talking about, like the fact that they believe their God was once a man and that you can become a God if you follow all of the rules. Um, like I said, he's open to talk about it. He just doesn't know what, what the church believes. And so it leaves me to ask, well, if you don't know what the church believes, then why would you join? I think a lot of people join the LDS church because they have this sense of, community, a sense of belonging, a sense of, of being accepted and included. Well, besides that, he met, a, he met a Mormon girl and he wanted to please her. But the real thing that draws Mormons, draws people into the Mormon church is that sense of acceptance, that sense of belongingness, to the need to be received. You remember that uh, TV show, the comedy TV show, Cheers? You know, and, and Cheers is a bar that everybody goes to hang out because it's a place to feel accepted. And so the, the song that goes with cheers is, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. They're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to go where everybody knows your name. Why do people go to bars? It's not to drink. It's way less expensive to drink at home. But people go to bars for a sense of belonging, for a sense of being accepted how they are. Um, people go for this need to be included, to be received. A similar example might be, why do people join gangs? You know, a gang is a group of people that get together and they usually have some common commonality and they're almost always involved in some competition with other gangs. And many gangs um, often are linked to crime and, and drug trafficking and theft. But the main reason that people join gangs is this very same reason. There's a need to be accepted, a need to feel included, a need to be received, a need to belong. Do you remember if you've, if you've attended freshman psych, you remember Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. He came up with this in 1943, and basically it teaches that on the bottom of our human needs are these physical needs, and at the top, the, the apex of the pyramid, is the need for self-actualization. So you can't ascend towards self-actualization until you've had these basic needs met, and as you have these basic needs met, then these higher needs come into play. And one of these higher needs is this need to feel loved and accepted, a need to be um, uh, included, a need to belong. And we get, those, we get those needs satisfied through our romantic relationships, through, through family, through social groups, through hobbies, churches, hopefully, and if not, through cults and, and gangs and, and bars. We have this need to be accepted. Maslow links this 
this need to, a, a, he, he says it's a, a sense of yearning for friendship and belonging. And that's, of course, why people would join gangs. So my question is this, why do people join cults? Why do people go to bars? Why do people join gangs? And the answer is because of this need to feel accepted, the need to be included, the need to be received, which coincidentally is exactly what the church is supposed to be doing, but doesn't do a very good job of it. And when the church doesn't offer koinonia, when the church is not offering this fellowship, this unity, this sense of belonging, this sense of reception, then the world will look elsewhere for it. So how pathetic then that we come down to the point where the church is trying to imitate the world, trying to imitate the, the, the actions and the inclusions of, of gangs and, and bars and cults. I'd like you to take your Bible and turn with me where we left off last week. Today we're in Romans chapter 15, verse 1, if you'll turn there. <laughs> We've been studying uh, the past several weeks the, the freedom that we have as Christians, the freedom, the liberty we have um, to do anything that we feel that our spirit-led conscience, conscience permits us to. We're not subject to laws, we're not subject to rules, and we're not doing these things to earn God's favor or reception we obey God because it pleases him to do so. We obey God because he loves us. He has extended his, his favor towards us. He received us in our sinful condition. He loves us even then. He doesn't leave us in that position. He doesn't leave us as derelicts, but he receives us and he accepts us and he loves us as such. And he's now in the process of making us, transitioning us, changing us from the inside out to be like his own son, Jesus. And so while we are free to do anything we like, and Paul encourages us to voluntarily give up some of those freedoms or yield some of those freedoms and liberties for other Christians, both for those that are more liberated or more mature than ourselves and also those who are, who are less uh, liberated or less mature than ourselves for the sake of not causing offense. We don't want to trip people up by our freedoms and cause them to sin. It is a sacrifice that we make, but we don't consider such a sacrifice a loss. We consider it a joy because we're doing it to please the Lord, and we're doing that to build unity in the church. And that brings us to the text we're looking at today, Romans 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Notice Paul begins by saying, we who are strong. Paul lists himself as one of the strong, one of the people who recognizes the liberty he has in Christ, that he's not subject to the former rules. He says the weak people are, are, are bound by their scruples, by needless regulations. The strong, therefore, need to be kind, need to be considerate of the weak. And then he says in this text here, to bear with the weak. And that idea of bearing with, it sounds a little bit condescending, doesn't it? Like, yeah, we'll, we'll put up with you. We'll, we'll grit our teeth. And uh, this is kind of a half-exasperated tolerance that, that we think we have to have towards those who aren't as enlightened as we are. Uh, the word here, bestazzo, is, is, the, is a, a word that signals positive support. And we find it again in uh, Galatians 6, 2 where Paul talks about bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The idea here is not that we put up with 
weaker people, but that we are entering their hearts and we are bearing with them. We are helping them with the burdens that they have. So it's not that you're the, this, this condescending, exasperated attitude. This is, an idea, this is an idea of love, that because I love you, I want to encourage you and carry the weight with you. Our, our, our kind-heartedness ought to, to come out here. But the reality is it's a whole lot easier to criticize people than it is to build them up, to, to, uh, to be sympathetic toward them. The idea of acceptance, however, has to do with our new nature in Christ, not our old nature, our old sinful fallen man, because it is easier to condemn and to belittle and to mock and to caricature someone in, in a debate. Anytime you have a disagreement with them, it's a lot easier to criticize the person than to stick to the topic. And that's what we do in political debates, right? We, we ridicule the person, not argue the, the case with them. At a, at a very minimum, when we have disagreement with brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to listen. We ought to, we ought to uh, hear them out uh, without criticizing their point of view. We ought to, we, we ought to be kind-hearted with them and, and uh, allow those lesser things to pass. Instead of pleasing ourselves, Paul says that each one should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. That's verse 2. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that by pleasing your neighbor, you do whatever he asks, whatever he wants. You know, the whims of trying to, to please other people is a trap you can never sustain. You're jumping from one concept to another, trying to satisfy the critics, hoping that somehow if you agree with them that they will not dislike you. The, the aim of the disciple is, first of all, to please God. But we show consideration, we show a respect for others who have a different opinion from our own. Now, specifically here, Paul asks the strong, he's asking the strong in this case to abstain from meat or, or wine or the observance of certain days. He's asking them to abstain so that they don't cause the weak to stumble. And it's more apt to be that the strong complains, okay, I'll give up these rights, but you should realize how inconvenienced I am on that. We want people to, to understand in the forfeiting of our, our rights that we're, we're doing it to show how big we are. Jesus asks us to do this because it's a sacrifice, because there's a higher value, something greater that we give up something lesser for. And so he, he tells us that we should do these acts of giving up our rights so that the church could thrive and our brother and sisters could grow in the Lord. Now, Paul introduces another concept here which has not yet been brought up in the book of Romans, and that's the subject of, um, to, to edify, to be built up. We get the word edifice here, the building. The church is often um, likened to a building. Christians are likened to be a building or, or part of the building, and we are to build one another up. We're constructing the, the church, not the building that houses the church, but we are the church, the edifice. And this word occurs in uh, chapter 4, verse 19, where he says, let's, um, let's, let's therefore make every effort, I can't quite get it, let's therefore make every effort uh, that leads to peace and mutual edification. So he's using that same word, edifice, edification, build up. Each of us should do this building up 
to please others, not ourselves. Of course, there's a negative side, of course, to building up, right? And we understand we ought to be building our brothers up. We ought to be building the church up, but it's so much easier to tear down. That's the negative side. We, we can either build up or we can tear down. And unfortunately, a lot of Christianity looks more like tearing down than it does building up. We, we fight over things that aren't, that aren't important. We, we destroy the work of God for the sake of food, Paul says in 1420. Uh, Another way we tear down rather than build up is when we insist upon our own rights and our own pleasures because we're not thinking about other people. We're just thinking about what we want. And the verse we're looking at, verse 2, says we should each please our neighbor for, uh, for his good so that we're building him up. You know, churches divide over the stupidest things. There's always the, you know, the, the proverbial the church splits over the carpet or the drapes, right? Literally, a church I know of split because they couldn't decide where on the platform to place the piano. <laughs> there was another congregation. Actually, there were two congregations. They were in a small community and not far away from each other. And they thought, you know, here we have two churches that are struggling to survive. It would make far more sense if we federated, if we merged the church so that we could become united larger and more effective rather than two struggling churches. And that was a great idea, except that in the process of merging the two churches, they had a, an insurmountable problem, and that had to do with how to recite the Lord's Prayer. One group preferred, give us this day, or wait, forgive us our trespasses, and the other one preferred, forgive us our debts. And they couldn't harmonize whether it was forgive our trespasses or forgive our debts, and so the local newspaper reported one church went back to its trespasses while the other church returned to its debts. <laughs> Paul is so in tune with the mind of the Lord that he recoils at such folly. Verse 3, let no one who eats despise the one who abstains. I'm in 14.3. Let no one who eats despise the one who abstains and let no one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him so then. Verse 19, uh, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding, edification. Now back to 15, verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For, who, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Again, he's talking, talking about the attitude of Christ Jesus, the attitude not to please himself. In his letter to the church in Philippi, um, Paul wrote that Jesus, during his incarnation, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of a, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death on the cross. And I want you to listen carefully to that because what is the primary motivation of Jesus? The primary motivation for Jesus to go to the cross was to please his Father and to accomplish his Father's will. And that is evident in all of the Gospels. Um, he, Jesus told the 12, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. To the people, the multitude that were gathered near Capernaum, he said, I have come down from heaven 
not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. We might have expected at this point, Paul, to say that Jesus did this not to please himself, but to please us. But he doesn't say that. He says he does this to please the Father. Jesus endures mistreatment. He, 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 uh, he endures the abuse. He endures the, the, the crucifixion. The Gospels talk a lot more about the mockery of the people, the reproaches of the people, than the actual physical crucifixion. But the thing that Jesus recoiled from was that he would be the object of God's wrath. Nevertheless, he did this for our sake in obedience to the Father. Now, you have to understand that Jesus certainly had the ability at any time to stop the process. He had the ability to end all of the insults and reproaches. John Chrysostom said, he had the power not to suffer what he suffered. If he wished, he could have ended it at any time. But Jesus does this because he is not, he's willing to submit his pleasures, his wills, his preferences to the will of the Father. Verse 4 says, whatever was written in earlier times, and that obviously refers to the Old Testament. Paul is saying all the things that were written before um, are recorded for our instruction so that we could learn. Now, they're obviously written to the group that was in existence at that time. Those, these are personal letters from someone to someone, and they were written specifically to those people that they're addressed to. But Paul is saying that they have intent for all of us. We can learn from that. We can grow through that. Um, in uh, Corinthians, I can't quite see it. Um, Paul says all, he's talking about the things that happened to the, the Jewish people during the Exodus, during Moses' time. He says all these things happened, happened to them as examples to us that we should not crave the things that they craved for. These things happened as an example um, that were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So the scripture was written to an original group of people, but it directly has application to us. We learn from what was uh, written down for us. We learn about who God is. We learn about what God wants. We learn about what, God's, what God is like. We learn about what God expects from us. We learn how we can worship God. There's much to learn from the Old Testament reading. Verse 5. <coughs> May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in, a, in accord with Christ that Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomes you for the glory of God. You may recognize this because I frequently use that as a benediction when I'm closing. Our subject here is unity in the church. Let's go back over that same verse again, verse 5, and look at the words. You can mark up your Bible or you can mark up those little pamphlets that I hope you bought about the book of Romans. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to, one, live in harmony, two, with one another, three, in accord with Christ Jesus, for that together, five, with one voice, you glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See all these things that have to do with unity, and what's the conclusion of that? Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomes you for the glory of God. Paul then um, goes on to... Uh, no, I want to back up here. There's a real similarity here 
in this benediction with Jesus' high priestly prayer that's recorded for us in John 17. In John 17, um, there are six items, six things that Jesus is praying for. Um, he prays for joy, holiness, truth, uh, mission, unity, and love. So unity is the fifth out of the sixth thing that Jesus prays for in the high priestly prayer. But it's the thing he prays longest for, most urgently for. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May, also, may they also be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So clearly, this was important to Jesus. And he realizes this was going to be a struggle in the church to come. And so he prays with great length and he prays with great uh, strength here having to do with the unity of the church. Um, stay here in Romans, but flip ahead to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, again, Paul's talking about the necessity for unity in the church. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Verse 13, until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure and the fullness of Christ. He's talking about unity, which we already have. We don't have to create it or build it or initiate it. It's something that the Holy Spirit has already provided for us. It's our duty to maintain it or to keep it from being broken. Uh, back in Ephesians uh, 3, verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is, who is over all and through all and in all. That's the unity that is so important to Jesus this is the bulk of his prayer to the Father in his high priestly prayer. The consummate reason, the consummate purpose for Christian unity in the church is not, however, to benefit each other or to bless one another. It is to please the Lord and to be obedient to him and is for the glory of God. And so we have this urging here that we should be in one accord, that we should have with one voice and glorify the the Lord of our, the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 5, we, we read this word endurance. And to us, it summons up some kind of a concept that we have to grunt out some individual grit. We have to endure one another. We have to endure uh, as, as an individual other people. But the word here is plural. And it is meant that in every case in Romans 15, it is the plural you, not the individual you. We don't have such a plural you, except in the South, where you have you all and all you all. So, so let's look at that verse again. May, what's, all y'all and all you all, but we don't all hear all y'all. It's all you all, as you all and all you all. So. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, plural, all y'all, to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that together you, y'all, may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, 
Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. How many of you, show of hands, how many of you are following the, the sermon questions? I write sermon questions in, to, to take you deeper from the sermon. How many of you get those? Yeah, see Dennis, see Dennis over here? You may harass Dennis if you want to get those, those out. Every week I'm writing sermon questions that take you deeper into the sermon, and you can give Dennis your email and get on that list. So if you, for the handful of you who actually are following the sermon questions, there's the answer to almost all the questions this week. Why do we do this? Not essentially for the benefit of one another. Not essentially for the unity of the church. Not essentially for our own growth and well-being. For the glory of God. Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ came as, became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it's written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, O you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will hope. So Paul has four quotations from the Old Testament. Psalms 18:49, Deuteronomy 32:43, Psalms 117:1 and Isaiah 11:10. Much to our surprise, however, these citations don't add anything to his main point. They're they're not reinforcing the main point of this section. Rather, he's dealing with a subpoint, a a uh, supporting point here uh, in a minor way that Christ serves the Jews, he fulfills all the promises made to the Jewish patriarch so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. And Paul's not specifically saying who is he addressing here, because he's addressing all believers, Jews and Gentiles, uh, Greeks and, and, and foreigners, the strong and the weak, and he calls all believers to accept one another, to accept each other. He's calling on all Christians to do so for this that we'd have this deepest sense of unity that we treat each other with love and understanding just as, he says, just as Christ accepted us. Now, if the perfect, sinless Son of God is willing to accept us as we are or as we were and love us so completely while we were sinners, can't we accept each other despite the fact that we are still struggling with our own and one another's sinful trappings from our old unredeemed flesh. So according to this passage here, the purpose of our unity is not so much that the church might be a pleasant place and not so much that the weak can grow and mature and be strong and not so much that the strong can channel their giftedness. Rather, it is that God would be glorified. God must be made known. God must be shown how wonderful he is. Moreover, it is that we as Christians display that we have one heart, that we are one mind, and we praise God with one voice, lifting one mouth, that God is glorified. Our own personal preferences, our own personal comforts are not the subject in this text here. In Mark chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus takes the 12 aside and he tells them what's going to happen. He says, 
We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Do you suppose that Jesus is pleased at this prospect? I mean, he knows what's going to happen. He knows that he's going to be rejected by his people. He's going to be abused by the Gentiles. He's going to be um, the object of his father's wrath. He realizes that he's going to be mistreated, dishonored, and hated. And he's doing this because he is submitting to the Father's will. He said, Father, uh, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Whose will is Jesus submitting to? So we have to ask ourselves, so why did he do it? Why did he choose to subordinate himself to the Father's will when it would have been much more desirable and pleasant if he would please himself? Why did he go to the cross? And you, you might say, well, he had to be Lord. No, he always was Lord. He didn't need to go to the cross to become Lord. He goes to the cross and he becomes your Savior. Remember the temptation that Satan put Jesus in front of? What was the temptation? You can be Lord without the cross. You don't have to do that. Again, so why does he do it? Why does Jesus go to the cross? Well, you know, you've heard this question, maybe not in those words, but you hear this question all the time. Why does Jesus die on the cross? Typically, our answer is, well, because he loved us and he wanted to rescue us from our sin and take us to heaven. We're so accustomed to thinking of ourselves as the object of Jesus' behavior. It is not principally for us and because of us. Yes, all of those things happen, but the reason, the primary reason that Jesus goes to the cross is because his Father willed it. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. The answer to why Jesus goes to the cross is because of his love for the Father. Our salvation is achieved because of his obedience to the will of the Father. The principal reason for his incarnation, for his sinless life, for his death on the cross, was the covenant bond that Jesus had, always had, with the Father. Jesus said, you've heard me say that I'm going away and I'm going to come back to you. If you love me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it happens, you will believe. I don't speak with you much longer, for the prince of the world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what the Father has commanded me. Dr. Barnhouse said, of all the sentences that would give me great joy to speak abroad, I can think of none greater than these words of Christ, that the world may know that I love the Father I go to the cross. So the result of Christ's obedience, of, God, of doing God's will, of pleasing the Father, of not pleasing himself, is that you and I have received righteousness and eternal life because it is a gift from the Father because of his great love for us. He loved us enough to send his Son. Can you imagine that kind of love? Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us. Verse 13. Here's another one of these benedictions. It's, a, it's also a prayer. May the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the, by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Uh, look at uh, uh, 14 verse 7. You see the same terms used here. You see this, the terms of it's 14, 17. You, you see the terms of, of peace, joy, and Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is reiterating here again in verse 13. He's asking God of hope um, to empower believers to abound in hope. You know, the Christian is hopeful because Jesus has conquered death. We can therefore hope in all kinds of different circumstances. We, we can have hope when we have cancer. We hope that God will heal us from cancer, but we hope that if God chooses not to heal us from cancer, that he will welcome us into our eternal home. You may be struggling with, with singleness, and you hope that God would send a, a mate to you, someone who's, who's loving and caring. You hope that God will do this, but you may also hope that if he doesn't, that God will provide family through the church, that God will provide for you so you should continue to have hope. To everyone who feels isolated and without a friend, Jesus says, I receive you. I welcome you. If you, you feel worthless, Jesus says, I respect you. If you never had a father who said, I, I love you, Jesus calls you and he calls you his beloved. If you've never tasted this unconditional love, this, this ex acceptance, this reception, this, this from Jesus, Jesus invites you, come unto me. The gospel says we don't have to prove ourselves to God. We don't have to show him that we're worthy to be saved. The reality is no matter how skillful, how diligent or noble you arrived, God will never say to you, finally, at last I can love you. He loved us when we were still sinners. He loves us with an everlasting love. Yeah, he expects greater things from us. Yeah, he wants us to grow up and mature. He, he wants us to... Uh, to love the things that he loves. But his acceptance begins when we believe, not when we perform. Above all, Jesus is our example, our hero, our mentor. And so we can love others. And so we can welcome those who are proud and selfish and legalistic and misinformed and overconfident and annoying and scheming. We can welcome those people because Jesus did. He embraced all of them. He, he loved them before we knew them. And he's in the process of making us more like himself. People are attracted to groups like the Mormons, groups in bars, cults, gangs, primarily because somewhere it's implied that you will be accepted. You can come here just like you are, and we will love you, foibles and all. But those are all empty promises because you get hooked on the implication of acceptance because we desire so deeply to be received. We desire to belong. We desire to be accepted, to be able to show people what derelicts we really are and still be loved. In the final analysis, it's only Jesus Christ and his church that can provide that. 
And that's what the church is supposed to be doing. At least, that's what's supposed to happen. Let's pray. Father, we come from many different backgrounds and we are many different levels of maturity, but every one of us is a disgusting individual who if we really allowed others to see who we are, we are afraid that we would be rejected, that we don't measure up, that we don't fit the standard, we don't fit what's uh, acceptable in the, in the group. How different the church would be and how different it would look to the outside if we could just be who we are and know that we are loved and we are accepted, that we desire to grow, but this is who I am now. I pray, God, that uh, we can grow that way. I pray that we can work to preserve the unity that you provide by your Holy Spirit. I pray that our testimony in this community would, would grow because people would be marveling at what great love we have for one another. We don't have to imitate the artificial acceptance that we find in cults and clubs and bars, gangs. Now this is the real thing right here. I pray that you will grow your church on this and that our testimony would be what a great God we have and that we would declare your glory. Because I know this is your will, I pray it in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amazed in the presence.